I, I somehow feel that we are not giving the best possible presentation to Mali here. Yeah, so starting the African film with a song take from what is mostly tied into a Western animation film. Sorry, wrong song. But precisely the right image, like the very first shot of the movie, is, is the opening shot of The Lion King. You can't avoid the connection there. No. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Even though I, I must confess, I really did try. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Flick Lab. This is a film podcast that is published weekly. Every week we push out one new episode about any movie from any category from any country. But we tend to delve deep into the treasures of the international cinema. In fact, we have an international cinema challenge going on right here and that's Basically, the only reason why we're watching a, f- a film made in Mali. Yeah, because you wouldn't touch a Malian film otherwise. Well... I- is that what you are saying, man? I'm saying it <laughs> wouldn't cross my mind. Just like that. I- I'm, I- I'm, I- I'm both shocked and a tad bit disappointed. Oh, apologies for our Malians. But, but not for me, apparently. God damn it. Like, th- <laughs> this is the man I have to work with. <laughs> what, uh... Is this a reference to your Malian heritage? No, this is the reference to my complete absence of Malian heritage. You are willing to apologize from from the Malian people, but not from your co-host. The fact that you wouldn't consider watching a film coming from Mali if it wouldn't fit your international cinema challenge. Yep. Like, I, I, I thought that I, I was working with a congenior of, of film and, and cinema here. I, th- I thought we were making a real, uh, extremely serious and extremely varied film podcast. Don't try me, or in the next International Cinema <laughs> Challenge we will watch only films from Africa. Well, actually, we most likely we could even do that, seeing how extremely big and kind of divert continent Africa is. Who knows? I mean, would be interesting. It's entirely a different thing if we can find enough movies from each country. But there are some interesting things to look at. Was it a Ugandan crime thriller or something? And uh, it has very poetic lines like die bitch. Would would like to check (laughs) it out. Yeah, or or, you know, who killed Captain Alex? (laughs) Which we also would have to uh, cover someday on, on this podcast. It just happens to be one of the greatest action movies ever made. One man against the entire Tiger Mafia. But Henrik, what the hell is a Mali? It's the thing that you score in basically in every game, like football or ice hockey. <laughs> yeah, the, the Finnish word for a goal, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. But tonight we're talking about a landlocked country in West Africa. And uh, don't worry, we will also look at the actual film. But this is like... 
the most, the hardest episode of the International Cinema Challenge so far to pull off because this required, well, at least two or three weeks of research to get like the hang of, hang of it of what the hell is going on here. We were supposed to record this like two weeks ago already, but we decided that, that the workload is uh, slightly taxing. So I was like, let's push this into the far future, Henrik. Yeah, the the thing with, with Yelen, like to give our listeners the warning right now, right here before anyone actually starts to dwell deeper into the podcast or and possibly check the film out for the first time. The thing is that Yelen is kind of an extremely hard film to approach because it is so much tied into the culture of Mali and and the tribes and people living in there. And there is a lot of the plot is tied into the context that exists in Mali, which is not in any way transported into the West, to Western audiences. And that kind of a ma- makes the case so that when you start to watch this film, you kind of have to have the context. Because the film is not giving you any context when you are watching it. So you kind of would have to do three weeks worth of background research before you even see the film. And I, I guess like more than in any of our previous episodes, this would be the one where we try to give you the... Where we most try to give you the context of the film. To give you the loose framework around which the film and the film's plot works around. And to, to give you the first step so that by w- getting the context here and then checking out the film, you may start your own journey to decipher what the film is about. Yeah, this is one of those very few episodes where I would actually recommend to listen to our beautiful voices before you are going to actually watch the film. It took us over a year, but we finally found a way to be actually useful to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Mali, <clears throat> or Gaul, or the landlocked country in West Africa, is uh, also the eighth largest country in Africa, 18 million people. Capital is Bamako, with 1.8 million people. Although largest city by population is Sikasso, with 2.6 million people. Roughly, north side of the country is Sahara Desert. South side is where most inhabitants live. And the economy is based on agriculture and mining. Third largest producer of gold. Producers produces a substantial amount of salt. Generally rich in natural resources. So you can imagine how rich they can be there. Like all the other African countries that have great mineral resources. So it's one of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, but the unfortunate reality there is that even even though they have the resources, they don't have the means and the infrastructure to actually take up those resources and put them into good enough use, which has led them into the unfortunate reality where, well, to, today it is it is a nationwide global race to reach the resources. In, in Africa and in Mali. Well, Chinese basic... are pushing very hard on this front at this time. That they are, but I would say that this is basically the general problem of African countries on a whole. It is, the, it is. That they are kind of a, the extraction point 
of resources, natural resources for the Western countries. Now, of course, China is trying to take a great foothold there. Yeah, so something that most definitely has, I would say, has not helped them in the past is the fact that Africa is such a large continent. So, and there is a lot of history between these countries and different ethnic groups fighting each other them fighting their border neighbors, Africa as a continent fighting against its border neighbors, and also the years of colonialism which were emplaced in, in Africa. So, when cover when, when you take all that, and then you look at the lack of prosperous mining operations and mining infrastructure, and for example, the excavation of, of uranium, it's it's kind of easy to see why don't why they don't have that and why some a country like for example China would have that and now would simply come to Africa and implement their mining infrastructure there to steal all their natural resources. There hasn't been a lack of knowledge during the golden age of the country. It was flourishing in mathematics and astronomy, art and literature. And also in, in economics altogether, which is kind of quite funny when you look at the situation today. I mean, years way past, the king Mansa Musa was, according to Forbes, was the richest man in the entire world. Basically, almost bankrupted the entire West Africa when he went on spending spree during his years to Mecca. Oh, okay, yeah. Which, like I said, it contrasts a bit ironically into the state of things today. Yeah, this repeats in so many African countries that it's not even funny. Rich government, rich people at the top, some tyrant there, and uh, the people living in almost absolute poverty. Yeah, but, but also the, the history of these fallen kingdoms and fallen empires, which... Back at their heydays have been huge and instrumental and giving you entirely different Africa that you get today. And then, you know, throughout the centuries, them losing their power and losing their control because the descendants of these great kings have not been able to keep hold of that status and that power. And when you look at it today, it is... A poor continent and houses some of the most poorest countries in the world. Thank you, France, Germany, et al. Yeah, th- thank you, France, Germany, et al. Thank you also, poor descendants and poor governance. From absolute chaos like that, when you leave them there hanging out to just try to form their own governments out of nothing, it somehow so happened that there are a lot of leaders that take advantage of their throne. Yeah, and it also ain't simply a question of leaving them hanging in there. It's also a question of how during the colonialism era the country was divided. Because it was divided by which country actually owned or controlled which landmass and which which part of the continent had which natural resource. And the divide was done based on these factors, and not based on the ethnic or religious differences between people. And because of this, you, you kind of ended up with huge landmasses which forcefully segregated ethnic groups and religious groups from each other, and vice versa, forcibly forced them together under the rule of 
of the governing nation. Yeah, it's so so sad to see to see them all broken apart and much like you see also when it comes for for example ethnic and religious conflicts between different groups in in real world like Hutz and Tutsis which has been extremely bloody and tragic conflict somehow in the french french language the people of pell are people of pell but otherwise known as fula people yeah so something which today's film is not helped by at all by the official english subtitles which is weird combination of english and and french words yeah it seemed sometimes that the subtitler is not exactly on top of things of what is going on in this film or it what could be his french background and not 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 only on top of things that are happening but at times i fe- i was I, i'm convinced that at times there were actual gaps where The characters were laying out dialogue and it was not subtitled at all. So yeah, during the scramble of Africa, France seized Mali to make it part of the French Sudan in the late 1800s. 1905 slavery ended in French West Africa. 1960 Mali gained independence. 1991 there was the the one-party rule which ended on 19, in 1991 due to a coup, and a multi-party democratic system was set up. But the problems have not really been solved afterwards. There are still many problems. January 2012, armed conflict broke out in northern Mali. Tuareg rebels took control of the north and declared a new state called Azawad. And this was followed by a strong French military operation Serval. In January 2013, result... The Malian and French forces recaptured most of the northern Mali. 2019, there was a massacre of 160 Fula villagers, the aforementioned Pell people, committed by Danna Ambassagu group. They denied doing it, but the sitting president Keita ordered the group to disband. 900 schools were closed lately due to hostilities, with many of them occurring in the city of Mopti. And there is still a modern-day slavery in Mali today, around the Tuareg communities, especially with as many as 200,000 people held in direct servitude to a master. The borders are insecure, one of the poorest countries in the world, average annual salary about 1,500 US dollars. But there has been some reforms in the 2000s and the GDP has been growing 94.8% of the population is Muslim. The country is home for people of Bambara, Soninke, Kasonke, Malinke, all part of the broader Monday group, and several minorities. Literacy rates are terrible, around 27% to 46%, depending on the sources that you're looking at. HIV-AIDS problems are one of the lowest in Africa, though, about 1.9% of the population. Huge numbers of female genital mutilation, of course, that is not a surprise. Very traditional, let's say. So women basically have little to no rights when they get married. Women are blamed for the mistakes of their children. And women are discouraged to join politics. But it's not all bad. Mali has some important sites. There's the UNESCO World Heritage sites and the 
historic city of Timbuktu that everybody knows by name, but probably almost no one knows where it's located. So Timbuktu is in Mali. Shockingly, we have a population, as mentioned, of about 18 million people. But of those 18 million people, according to my sources, only about 900,000 people have mobile phones, 45,000 televisions, and uh, about 400,000 internet users. Uh, it's like 5% of mobile phones for the entire country. So, so to s- s- sum up your point, it's a country that has a high illiteracy rate, it's extremely poor, and there is a rampant human rights violations going on, but it has really nice sights to see. Well, hey, you know, have to pick out the positives in this podcast. I, 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 some, I, I somehow feel that we are not giving the best possible presentation to Mali here. <laughs> That's always the problem in this podcast. I feel always so uncomfortable when we have to say the the, the bad things about country. But I, for the to give a kind of a, like a balanced view for our listeners, I think it's a good thing, especially when we have guests from those countries and we say something bad. I feel bad, but I feel like it's my responsibility to discuss this. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with your responsibility to discuss about the bad things in any given country. I'm merely pointing out that, well, we did discuss a bunch of bad things in Mali, and then when it came to the good things, we just I know. mentioned that there's four World Heritage sites. Well, hey, you know, yeah. Kind of a e- e- evens it out, like, the scales are in balance. <laughs> in this film, we are concentrated a lot on the Bambara group. It's an agricultural community. There are Dogon, there are Bambara. 80% of population in the country speak Bambara, regardless of ethnicity. Then there is also the Fula people. Both of these are seen in the film. Bambara means unbeliever or infidel. That's the source of the word. It was acquired because the group resisted Islam after the religion was introduced in 1854. But nowadays, most of the Bambara adhere to Islam. However, there are still a lot of practicing of traditional rituals, especially to honor ancestors. Society is quite patriarchal, but uh, virtually no women have a veil. Would it be seen by seen? If, if you have no other mean points to make about Mali... Let me think about it. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I, will, I will get back to you. Let me take a hard, close look on all the facts that I can lay about Mali and see if I can find something even more meaner than what we have said previously. <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> so, for this episode, we were unable to get a visitor from Mali. That we did might... try, though. We honestly did, did try. Yeah, we made an effort. Yeah, who could have thought that internet users... Nobody was browsing Reddit today when we approached them. True. Okay, so the film basically starts with a little language school about Bambara language. Which is in- extremely important to pay close attention to, because if, if you do, the rest of the film still won't open up to you. <laughs> yeah, you get like a... You get some of the rough ideas of the Bambara people... You get to know what, what heat is in Bambara. It's Gonia, but it, 
that doesn't give you anything yet. It, it, it kind of doesn't mean that much in the film altogether. It just looks nice. Yeah, the, the most that the thing that has most bearing in in the film that gets mentioned here, I, I guess, is is the mentioning of Colin Kalani, which is something that is is an actual object that is repeatedly being used throughout the film. Yeah, let's let's look one by one at those things that were told in the beginning. So, so Gonya is heat. Ta means makes fire, and Diafla means the two worlds, earth and sky, exist through light. And then we get to the word Yelen. I guess this film is kind of making the point here that all the previous words that have been mentioned kind of relate to the brightness and light. So for the Bambara, the Como is divine knowledge, the film says. It continues that it is taught by signs. It covers all forms of knowledge and life. The core is the seventh and final Bambara initiation society. Its symbol is the holy vulture, bird of space and knowledge. Its emblem is a wooden horse, symbol of the human spirit. Its scepter, a carved board called Korewing. Kolon Kalani, as you mentioned, a magic pylon, is used to find lost things and to expose and punish thieves, traitors and perjurers. The Korewing and the magic pylon have been used in Mali for centuries. Yeah, and and the thing to take in into note here is that, like you pointed out, the Como is being taught through signs, Me- meaning that the Monday people don't have written tradition, mm. and that is something that ac- actually plays out very much in in, in the film, where, when you see how how the magic is actually used through and throughout, because unlike in in Western tradition, where, where the words have have the power like you, you have your wizard stick and you say yell out the spell and and stuff happens the harry potter school of wizardry but since monday people don't have the written tradition in their culture the the words don't have have the power that they have to us to the Western folk. Instead, what is hugely appreciated is science is physical objects, being able to craft something. Like, for example, a smith who can make tools and make weapons would be kind of in the higher end of the social hierarchy because he has a practical knowledge of doing practical things. And this is something, this is the way how the magic altogether works. Throughout Yelen, it's always practical physical objects that are made by people who have the practical thought and knowledge of how to make this thing, how to make make the sorcery horse bone talisman, and where to plant that said talisman to get the piece appear, so so to say. And it's kind of a, you you kind of a, it's it helps you a lot if you are aware of this thing and the difference between between the wizardry in Yelen and the wizardry in, in usual western stories, like for example Harry Potter. It gives you the first clue of why the people and the, why the characters in the film are acting like they are acting. Why is the horsebone so goddamn important? All in all, it's fascinating that they have taken these ancient rituals and beliefs and then they make a film out of it and, you know, kind of finally, the, I guess the beliefs you can see in practice 
or you can see what is the end result of those magic potions and spells. Like in the normal life, it would be less cinematic, I would say. Of course, I haven't seen any of these rituals in real life. Who knows? Maybe there will be a great light. And yeah, don't don't you be bad mouthing about magic traditions, man. <laughs> I'm just saying there could have been a few smoke machines at the end of the film. Most most likely, and and the director's defense, he did want those smoke machines. He did want more high end special effects, which most of it comes into the play in the final fight of the film. But unfortunately, while Yelen does have the vistas, it does have the actors, it does have the traditions and the folklore, it does not have the budget. Like, at all. No, but I feel that it's done with the it's done with care. It's done with grace, and it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't look bad. It, it's done with the best possible compromises that you can do in the circumstances. But you you still can actually see in in some scenes you can very clearly still see the the fact that they are trying to showcase you something much more grandiose than what you are seeing, and those are the moments where you see the lack of funding. Because okay, but yeah. certain, certainly didn't bother me at all. It it did bother me a bit. Like there, there are those there, there are the scenes where they use use the magic and, and where, where the magical world of Yellen is kind of more more largely played out. And in those scenes, I would have actually wished that there would have been something more, just that that mm. small bit of extra to make make those moments kind of more grandiose. It's not. That's surprising. The difficulties and the problems of the production are not that surprising. Seeing that the film comes comes from director Sulemaine Sisse, who has had previously problems in Africa related to his films, many of them which have been more, way more political and may, way more topical than what, what Yelen is. Like, Yelen is, is kind of the easiest of, of Sisse's films, and uh, most definitely politically wise, because what, what Yelen is, it's a historical fantasy epic, so to say. And the relationship on the modern name politics in Mali are kind of a loose and extremely hidden under the subtext. But that has not been the case in Cisse's previous films, which have been very openly political and very openly topical upon their release. And... This has gathered quite a lot of problems for Cisse to work in Mali. He, he has been jailed in the past for, because of his films. Official reasoning behind the jail sentence being that he had accepted French funding to make his movie, but seeing the context and the topic of the film, you kind of take that notion with a grain of salt. And it's very easy to see that why, why he landed in jail was because of the topics of his film. And that all kind of lays down into why Yelen in the end is the historical fantasy epic it is, because this is Cisse's knowing effort to kind of tone down the political elements of his movies in, in order to kind of help him to secure the possibility that he can still, even in the future, keep making movies in Mali with, with relative artistic liberties. 
It seems he has been doing a bunch of documentaries, IMDb says, but the uh, last feature film from 2009. Like you said, the Como is the divine knowledge, and, uh, and it's taught by science, and uh, like the movie says, all knowledge covered, and life itself with this word. So, unlike I have been suggesting to Henrik before, well, it's basically laid out here, this doesn't state anything about Como being a god, but... You could read it like that if you don't have the context. Yeah, in in the context of this film, what Como mostly plays out is a closed societal group of magic practitioners. Kind of like a wizard illuminati that e- exists in the nation. And as seen in the movie, mostly is a bunch of old men who just sit around and drink extremely stale warm beer, which on its own already is pretty disgusting. Just to have this on, I think we have to really drill these ideas into the listeners' heads still, so Kore Wing is a carved board and also known as Core Scepter. And the scepter plays a huge role in the film, which is with which the son tries to challenge his father to an epic end battle. Yeah, Kore Wing being kind of a the closest relative of the Western sorcerer's magic wand that this film has. It is not the way nearly as as prophetic and as important as uh, as that wand is. For example, to Harry Potter, but that is kind of the closest relationship that the culture of this film and and the Western culture can kind of tie together with Kore Wing. And Colon Kalani uh, is the the pylon that the father is carrying with his servants, right? Yeah, uh, b- yeah. basically a, a searching tool, which yes. ca- ca- can just lead you into different locations and can expose to you people who have have done wrong. It 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 has many purposes. Throughout this film, it mostly is used by the father and. And the puffing Diara, one of our hero's uncles, who both try to find our hero. Yeah, and the way that these pylons work is that you take two servants who carry it, and then you just keep repeating the same mantras about a god figure that has to help with this pylon to find things. And you repeat it until your servants die of boredom. and Or, or until you find what you are looking for. But you kind of have to keep the spell consistent. Like, once you stop repeating the spell, the pylon stops working and won't work until you continue on repeating the spell. Is that it, or is the father just kind of obsessed about his boy? Well, he is both. Yeah. God damn it. That, that, is, the, the, that is the main thing that the father does through, throughout the film. It's just go from one place to to another looking for his son. Cast of characters. Let's go through this real quick. We have the superstar of the night, Nianan Koro. We have Nianan Koro's father, Soma, who wants to kill Nianan Koro. A shocking beginning for a film, I have to say. And you're looking for the reason for quite a while in this film. <laughs> Nianan Koro's mother who I believe her name is not mentioned. No. Nope. She disappears pretty fast during the uh, beginning of the film. Yeah. 
Then we have Jiggy Diara, also buffing Diara. And this is the uncle that Nianan Koro, the son, is looking for so that he can challenge his father for an epic battle. No, no, but buffing Diara is the evil uncle who is helping Soma, Nianan Koro's father, to look for Nianan Koro. Uh, okay, wait. So, okay, we have Jiggy Diara and buffing Diara. Yeah, yeah, Jiggy to... Diara is the good uncle. Nianan Koro's... Oh, okay, yeah. Koro's father's brother. Who, yeah, okay, who, because this... Yeah. Yeah. This was really con- confusing because... Oh boy, is it ever. Because, because Right. Pa- yeah, because Puffing Diara does not show up in the film except in two scenes. Two fucking scenes. The first one being just a one image of his backside, which Nianan Koro sees when he's looking at the cauldron where he sees the people who are hunting him. And then he just vanishes from the film all of a sudden and is never seen again and mentioned only once. And Jiggy Diara, on the other hand, is played by the same actor who, is, who also plays Yanankoro's father, <laughs> the famous Soma. So <laughs> the, 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 the only difference be- between Jiggy Diara and Soma being that Jiggy keeps his eyes closed because he's blind. Yeah, but Jiggy Diara is the guy who helps Nianankoro in the end. Yeah, right? yeah. He, he, he is the blind, good uncle of Nianankoro. And Buffing is the asshole who comes to the king and uh, and Pre- and freezes his uh, warrior troops for a second there. Precisely that asshole. Or, or freezes the king. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that asshole is Buffing Diara. Yeah, because watching this, I... I understood that there is just one uncle of interest in this film, so I thought that this is now the guy who <laughs> who Nianankoro is somehow looking for, and he's there to wreak havoc and completely ignores what the king is saying about how good he has been for their people. Yeah, no, no you you can you can differentiate too by the by the fact that Buffing Diara has a worn out shirt. Yeah, and it's a different actor than who plays Soma. It is. It is. But yeah. th- then it gets for a moment a little confusing again because, like you said, the uncle and the father are played by the same actor because they are twins. So you yep. have to figure out what the hell is going on by the fireside before the epic battle. Yep. And that, that dear listeners, is the reason why we are humping around the theme of context when it comes to this film. Yeah, because we want you to enjoy this film more than we did on the first <laughs> but- go. Yeah, because we don't want that you first watch the film and then you do your three weeks of research to understand what the hell you just saw. And then you watch the film again and this time possibly can enjoy it. Yeah, and then you can maybe decide if you liked it or not. Then we have Magician Kuyate, which is only a character that is mentioned. Magician Kuyate is a magician to which the mother is going to try to reconcile the relations of the father and son, failing at it. Then we have Jikutigui, and I believe this is different from Jikuitiara. There's a Jikutigui, and it's a friend of Soma. Then we have the king, Urumaboli, and his assistants, Guelatio, Bama, Tufando. Then there is Attu, the youngest wife of the king, which Nianankoro takes to himself. Yeah, we have to get back to Atu in the, in the scene by scene because Atu is a bit problematic. Yeah. Then we have nothing of importance. No, that, that those were the major players. 
And if, if, if the dear listener is confused at this point, just imagine, you know, seeing the film for the first time. <laughs> Did we mention animism yet? We... No, we didn't. We didn't mention animism. So, so the religious belief and, and the magical beliefs in the film are centered around the theme of animism. The basic belief that every living thing has some kind of a spiritual power inside of them. Some, some living things, like humans, may have it more than some others, like for example rats, or trees, or flowers, but they all have. And that kind of spiritual force that lives in, inside all of us is, in film it is referenced as Niyama. And the sorcerers or wizards of this film are fo- referenced as Niyamakolas. Roughly translators as force handlers or something alike. Yeah, basically, imagine a world where even the letters that you write have a soul. So everything around you is full of color and miracles. Maybe this is a great way to to the positive thinking movement. Could be, but on top of that, to actually understand something that happens in the film, it, it is important that you know that in advance. We start the film with the sacrifice. The father of Nianan Koro is doing his magic spell and is talking about Mari, the god of brush, hunting, swamps, etc. So the way I read it, this is a very powerful god, basically responsible for everything. The god which knows the secrets and actually burns a real chicken, as far as my eyes can tell. I would say that the special effects department of this film wasn't quite up to 2019, so what they did was burn a real chicken, and the probably the Humane Animal Treatment organizations weren't monitoring this film. Yeah, I, I don't think there is such an organization guiding the film industry in Mali. And God, it looks painful and it was horrible to watch yeah the, the first thing like the, there are a couple of problematic elements in in the film and the first one is the animal cruelty which is very real and does happen really like two chickens really do get harmed most likely also killed in in course of the film the second one being the chicken that that has is being bled to to fuel the somas being. Of course, you could probably do this effect with optical composition, but it looked way too real to me, and the uh, it also sounded really real. Yeah. So so if you are skittish with animal cruelty, maybe take that one into notion before you know going headfirst blindly into this film because yeah. this is like. <sighs> Burning the chicken alive is is the second shot. It's directly the second shot of the film. The first one is is the Lion King sunrise, and the second shot is literally burning alive a chicken. Yeah, I kind of it's so uncomfortable. You have these religious beliefs, and it is problematic element in the sense that you do have the religious beliefs of animism that every every living thing has has Niyama, the, the Holy Spirit force inside them. So in that sense, the chicken's life matters a lot, because because the Niyama the chicken carries within him. And then you see kind of this 
callous sacrifice of the chicken, which is actually done also quite painfully, because the chicken is being burned alive. And yeah, yeah, you know, you take the animism point and it, it comes pretty problematic. On the same note, it I have to confess, it's one hell of a way to set up your villain. Like It is. If, so, if, Soma is a bad guy. Surprise. If, if you're a vegan, come ready for this this film and because the first thoughts in your head in the first few minutes will be fuck this film or something similar but if you <laughs> if if you go through the entire film i think you will be all the richer for it it, it is an experience that in the end pay, pays off but once again you have to kind of take a huge trek to actually reach that point okay Chicken is kaput, then we get to Nianan Koro peeking into his bowl of water. And he says that he sees his uncle Buffin coming with his post. He spits to make the image happen in the reflection of the water. Spitting image. Which, like, like, like you said, precisely, spits to make the image happen. Kind of an important notion ties into the whole Niyama thing. This is this is one of the reasons why we hammed around the whole Niyama before we started scene by scene. Because in, in the Western culture, the spitting is is a sign of of disgust. You yep. you loathe someone, so you spit towards him. But that's not the case in the film. There's the spit that Nyanakoro uses carries his Niyama. The common belief being that that in spit, in your in your spit, there is a large quantities of niyama. So when Nianankoro is spitting in the cauldron, spitting at the images he sees in the cauldron, he is doing that precisely to make the images appear, to make the magic happen, and not out of feeling of disgust. I made the decision, which I haven't really done before in this podcast, where I pick a Extremely complicated looking international cinema film and just pop it on without any kind of background research. That was my first watch. And I was like uh, stopping the image in the beginning of the film several times, even though I wasn't even taking notes on this run to get the idea of what the hell is going on, which I didn't. Yeah, like said, like said in the very beginning of the episode, the film does not give you the context. The film is not made for you. As a Western audience, this is made for for African audiences in mind, and they have the context already through their culture and heritage. Me, me, and Kari, we, we don't, so we had to do the background because because the film doesn't spoon feed you. It doesn't give it give you its context in in an easy ready made package. If it were to spoon feed you, you would see these black and white text slideshows for about 15 minutes before the film. The, 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 the film would be twice as long. This uh, scene with the mother is really interesting. So, <clears throat> Nianankoro's father is coming with his post towards the village where the mother and Nianankoro are staying. And the film makes the notion that Nianankoro will be found wherever he goes by his father. And they, they've been on the run for the longest time, something like 10 years. Mom constantly makes the notion that your father is a terror, and you don't know him, but I do. And no one can withstand his magic poison. 
She even humiliated herself to save her son. And 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 the son Nianangoro immediately kind of washes the whole notion away by making the notion that he has to face his father because he's a man and he has to deal with the situation. Yeah, to which the mother just laughs and you can't do anything against him. Like she makes the notion that in one strike he'd burn you to ashes. A conflict is made with the quote of that Nianankoro others, if my father didn't want me, why did he marry you? The mother gets really uncomfortable with this and does this gesture and throws something over his shoulder or, or it's looking like that. To veer off evil spirits is how I read it. Because he says that uh, only an accursed son talks of his parents' ties. And I gotta keep that in mind for the next life. Nianankoro apologizes. Mother makes the notion that naturally you'd like to know why your father wants you dead. Yeah, like at this point we are starving as an audience for the information. Yes, please. <laughs> and, and you will be starving for the rest of the film. Until the final battle, in fact. Maybe even even longer. Maybe even longer. We, we can get to that once we reach the final battle scene. So she hands first a fetish, like a amulet or bringer of good luck in this context of fetish. Yeah, fetish not being the sexual thing. Exactly. <laughs> Something to wear at throat, night and day. And then she hands over a second fetish, which is to be delivered for Jiggy, who is living with the Fula people, who is the uncle of Nianankoro. Mother will separate from her son in the early parts of the film, she is heading for Monday. It's a commune in the country. She goes there to look for the help of a magician called Kuyate, as mentioned for reconciling the relationship of father and son, but that didn't seem to work so well. Then we see the father. He breaks into the Nianankoros and mother's house, but the house is already empty. Or that's how I read it. I suppose you could read it that it could be any house, anywhere. Uh, to, to me also, the implication that the film is is making is that Soma, the, the father reaches Nianankoros and his mom's hut, but he's too late. Yeah. And we see mother and Nianankoro on their little travel. Mother hands more stuff for Nianankoro. It's, uh, I guess, another thing to give to Uncle Jiggy as they separate. Well, father is once again on the road, going on about the skies and swarms and all, all that jazz. Yeah, so the father is on the road and they run into a lady on the fields who helps the Kolonkalani carriers, which is the magic pylon that is very important for the father. The father is keeping up the, the magic so that the boys will carry it onwards. Yeah, so they drink water and then they finally arrive to a commune. Keeps on going about Mary God of the Brush. There he meets uh, father's buddy and father complains to him that his son Nianankoro has taken their ancestral fetishes, secrets of Bambara lore, and fled the country. And the movie highly suggests that this is somehow bad. Yeah, well, had Nianankoro taken the fetishes, that it would go against the laws and rules of Como, the wizard Illuminati of the film, and it would make Nianankoro a thief. Which, in turn, would kind of make Soma's, Nianankoro's father's search and kill mission kind of justified. He would be punishing someone 
who has stolen and through this act of thievery breaking against Como. However, if this uh, father is talking about the fetishes that he just received at the hut in the beginning of the film, those are all for the purpose of avoiding the father. Of course, if he could be talking about some other fetishes. Yeah. So, the, the question with fet- uh, the fetishes is never answered fully. Soma goes around repeatedly making the case that Nianankoro is a, is a thief and he has sto- stolen the fetishes. In the beginning of the film, you see the mother hand Nianankoro the two fetishes. And where does has the mother gotten the fetishes is never actually laid out. You don't know what fetishes those are. Are those the famous fetishes that Soma makes the case has been stolen? But with that in mind, it is also laid out that Soma has exiled his son Nianankoro something like 10 years ago already. Or as stated in the ending, it seems that he did that when he came out of the mother's womb. Yeah, it, it kind of gets confusing, like, because there is also the mentioning of the 10 years on a run. Which is not the age of Nihankoro. Which is chance. not the age of Nihankoro. So, it, it comes to a question, like, has the father disowned Nihankoro right after he was born, but still kind of tolerated his existence and not exiled him? I suppose. And, that, that is one reading you take, you can take, but what, like I said, it, it's just reading. The film does not give you conclusive answer on this matter. But whatever the case, Nianankoro has been on the run, hiding from his fa- father at least for 10 years, if not even longer. So that lays, if Nianankoro really is a thief, if Soma's claims do hold some water, in that case, either A... Nianankoro, his mom, has sneaked back into Como-controlled territory and stolen the fetishes recently. Or they have stolen the fetishes at least 10 years ago and Soma is incredibly slow on the intake. Well, I, I kind of, I, I, I feel the father. I would be mad as hell if, if all the fetishes of the commune would be removed. Yeah, but but there there is the whole problem of at least ten years. Like, is is Soma really that stupid that he hasn't in ten plus Nyankoro's age, which is I, I don't know twenty five, thirty maybe years, he hasn't noticed that the fetishes have been stolen except just recently. I was trying to make there the ham-fisted joke that uh, if we were talking about the other fetishes, this uh, watching of this movie will be way more fun. Kind of. Kinda, yeah. Kinda not, because maybe fetishes come into play otherwise in the film. Oh, they do. But, but there is there is also the reading that the whole claim that Nianankoro's father repeatedly makes throughout the film that fetishes have been stolen. That it may just be a lie. He, he's, he's lying to get a public justification for his hunt of Nianankoro. And that's kind of the reading I took from the situation. I, I didn't believe, I didn't buy his his claims that any fetishes have been stolen. Now it's time to check out the old Rafiki. I mean, the creeper in some kind of monkey costume, laughing from the tree. Uh, the, I, I guess, a manifestation of, of hyena spirit. Ooh, which looks like an ape. 
which, which, which looks kind of like a man in a hyena mask. Yeah, definitely this looked like the, the wise monkey that you see in The Lion King, Rafik. Kinda, kinda. I, I, I can see, see its monkey claim. But, but go, go, going with the laugh and going with the mask, I, I, I would say he is supposed to be some kind of a spiritual hyena. Like I said, like I said, the budget was like three soup cans for the entire film. Perhaps, perhaps you can think about the budget in this situation. You can th- think that it's just supposed to be some kind of a tribesman who is uh, dressed up in a monkey suit or something. <laughs> and who lives in a tree. For yes. absolutely no reason at all, <laughs> or it's a hallucination. Anyway, or, or is a, is is an hallucination. Whatever, whatever the case, once again, something something context. The film never actually answers what is the hyena man. But the hyena man does give Nianankoro. He kind of tells Nianankoro his future or one version of it. Yeah, which is supposed to be um, bright, but. Uh... The, this uh, brightness will be achieved in the ne- next life. Yeah, also makes the notion that that Nyanankoro's road will be good and and life is going to be happy, which kind of contradicts the ending of the film in in a way. It, it, it does, and it's uh, kind of a creepy to think that now that their child would would inherit the soul of Nyanankoro in the end. I mean, in the sense that like. Nianankoro being born again as a child for the mother. Yeah, that, that is one take you can take on the very end. We, we can get back to that when we reach the final scene of the film. Yeah, but let's play with mud. I believe from the mud, Nianankoro is able to tell that somebody has been in the mud just recently. And uh, in, indeed, he's been immediately watched from behind the trees. How I read this scene is that Nianankoro simply is trying to pass through the cows or livestock, but the kid alerts that he is now a thief, and they tie him up. My my take on the, the whole situation was that Nianankoro actually is dying of thirst. Uh, he looks very wary at that moment. Yeah, he does, also. and he does kind of a sway from left to right as he walks. And and when he reaches to the mud, which is kind of a moist, like he can he can pick up these lumps of mud from the mud from the ground. That usually in film is is tied into the concept of of you being thirsty. Like you find this one even a bit sweat spot on the ground, and you try to grab it and reach it to just find that one drop of moisture. Yeah, 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 that's probably how it is. And could also be that he was trying to kill some of the livestock there, or but uh, I don't know, I, I think he would be looking mainly for water. So he was just confused, dehydrated, and trying to pass through, I think. Maybe looking for milk, possibly. Oh, good point, good point. But nevertheless, is actually thought as, and, and captured as, as a cattle thief. Yeah, and... He doesn't have a very clean slate throughout the film, so I could believe that he was trying to get milk or put the cow to pieces later on. Maybe, maybe, because some, something to take into notice here is that Nianankoro is, is kind of an ass. When yeah. He, yeah. 
But yeah, they capture him and uh, we got uh, for the last scene of the mother where we see her in the film. She's in the bed of reeds. It's a pretty scene. I, I like the establishing shot. It's uh, really nice and calls for guards to save his son. Something about don't let weeds overgrow the house of the Diara. So yeah, to, to keep, keep the Diara al- alive, basically. Yeah, ke- keeping the bloodline, the Diara bloodline alive. Yeah, Diara, which is also a small town and a commune in Mali. Yeah, but in, in this case, being the last name yep. of, of the major players. The name Diara coming from the legendary king of, of Bambaras, Ngolo Diara, or something like that. Really don't know how, how to pronounce the first name, Angolo. Anglo, I guess. And yeah, but yeah, he, he was kind of this legendary king figure of the Pambaras. The Diara bloodline ruled the Seko kingdom from 17th, which highlight was kind of established by Nagolo, who was freed, slaved originally, and kind of rose from there as a conqueror who conquered the Peol people and the city of Timbuktu, amongst other things, and from that kind of built his empire, his kingdom. And that kingdom later on was was ruled by his descendants, the other Diaras. And that ties into the whole concept of, of the film, where we are watching the members of Diara household now fighting each other. Soma Diara against his son, Nianangoro Diara. And kind of the the prize that that conflict has. It kind of comes into a point where the the house of Diara is kind of being undone by the warring factions of the said house. Yeah, the day that I think that I'm overdoing the research, then we have Henrik who tops that. Well... I, I, I thank for so thank you for the kind comments. Waiting for the next episode where I will go bipolar again and I will give you some less nice comments. <laughs> <laughs> with, with friends like these. <laughs> <laughs> Nian and Koro is now as a prisoner and um, they are drinking milk, but then they go to the king. King asks whether Nianankoro can speak Peul, or otherwise known as Fula. He can't, so they use an interpreter. So they want to cut Nianankoro's throat for trying to steal the livestock. We are never given an explanation straight from the horse's mouth whether that was the plan or not. Nianankoro rather actually shows some arrogance in this scene, yeah. say, saying that Nianankoro that no one can kill Niankoro, and uh, he just hasn't killed the king's people because he feels pity for them. Kind of, Which? kind of showing uh, the point that, like son, like father, in a sense. In a sense, and when I mentioned that Niankoro is kind of ass, this is kind of this scene is kind of a, one of the major points of that notion. Because Nyanankoro kind of does this constantly throughout the film. You can kind of, you can maybe make the argument that he, in course of the film, he grows as a person. And in the final battle, he has shed these bad qualities of his persona. And he is now a better person when he faces, 
faces his father at the end. The film, however, does not make that super obvious to you, doesn't lay a strong case in favor of that take, but what it actually does show you is repeated instances where Neil and Korou is, is being a really pompous asshole. Yeah. Like, like, like when he may, makes the crude comments towards his mother, and, well, l- like in this scene, for example, where, where Nyanankoro has come to the Peul people's land, to their area, wandered midst their livestock, and has been captured. Granted, up until this point, Nyanankoro and the Peuls, they have not shared the language, and you, you can say that the confusion that has happened is therefore quite understandable them not being able to communicate with each other. But now the, the concept of interrupter is being introduced into the mix. And now the line of dialogue has been established through the interpreter. So Nyanan Korou, hearing what he is being accused of, does not try to any way understand the king, understand the, the coming point of the Peul people, that does not try to explain his actions, that does not make the case that I, I was not trying to steal your livestock, I was merely dying of thirst, I was desperate, I was just, you know, trying to get one drop of milk. That's nothing of the sort. Instead goes directly into boasting with his powers, making the case how you couldn't kill me even if you tried. If I hadn't been so weak, I would have already killed all of you. Yeah, and he also freezes one of the warriors and gets out of the ropes. After which the situation kind of changes on his head. And suddenly they are willing to take advantage of the skills of Nian and Koro to save the tribe or the village. Yeah, the wild enemy attack suddenly appears. Yeah, which makes them the best buddies. Well... Keep your enemies closer. And if possible, make them your best buddies. Well, that, that you kind of can't keep them any more closer than that. <laughs> there, there is a really uh, interesting scene of two guys playing a game of headbutting or something like that. The winner of the headbutting lives, and the other one dies. Basically, kills himself. But how this relates to the overall film, it's anyone's guess from my part. I, I, I took it that the. The headbutting scene is kind of the declaration of the attack. Like they, they, the attackers <sighs> by by winning the headbutting context, the attackers kind of give this unwritten social right to attack the Peul people. Makes sense. Makes sense. So he unfreezes the warrior, asks for a horse's right leg bone to defeat the enemy of the king. Sorry about that, but that that's kind of, uh, yeah, that's uh, quite interesting to delve deeper into these beliefs because this is uh, something that I have never really uh, had in my own religious circles. We didn't have uh, right legs, like bones of a horse inside a church. But so it happens that this is used for the ritual. It's being burned and it works. Now the enemy is bothered by army of bees and fires. Yeah. And they flee. Yeah, the the whole kind of um, making practical and practical knowledge, the blacksmithy element of, of the Monday people kind of uh, once again shows its head in, in this scene. Because 
Like mentioned previously, once again, contradicting the Western wizardry traditions, Nielan Goro never uses any words in, in his magic. Magic, in, instead, he makes a physical object, a physical talisman, which he then goes and, and hammers into a termite mound. Termite mounds clay being something that holds specific ma- magical properties and Kava holds more Niyama in it. So it is creating the physical talisman instead of using your words and then combining that talisman with the practical knowledge of using the clay of the termite mounds and this way getting the most magical power that you can get. Mm. Very good. Nianagoro feels that he has done his part, so he gave the favor for the king. But king says that there, there would be one more favor, and then he can go during the next day. This favor concerns helping his youngest wife to conceive. Nianagoro says that this is not an easy feat by any means, but he says that he will try it. And uh, the, the way that he is now able to conceive is... Achieved with the questionable means, but at least, the, the, yeah, he succeeded, let's say. Yeah, um, I, I don't know, if, if we should just grab the bull by its horns here. Go ahead. When it comes to Atu, the king's young wife, who is infertile, at least according to the king, dear listeners may have noticed that, that we, we, we had had some problems when... When relating to this scene, and well, fuck it, let's just propose the question. Since we are dealing with a film coming from Mali, hosting exclusively African black cast, the territory being largely Muslim, and there being racist stereotypes going around on both groups, let's discuss about rape. So, was it rape? Does Nyanankaro rape Atu at this moment? For my part, I didn't see it that way, but it could as well be, because we're not given anything to suggest anything. But however, I would like to note for our listeners that this film does make the notion that this, this is happening way before, uh, way before the Muslim times. So there, are, there yeah. are no French people, Germans or anything, and... No, no. So, so, there, there, so this is, is kind of the... Yeah. Uh, this is based somewhere around the... Ter- ter- uh, the 13th century if i if i spot the timeline kind of correctly so this is very infancy of the bambara people themselves and and way before before the religious divide between the muslims and the christians and so forth in the in the region i i'm i merely, merely did point out the, the religious aspects because well because well, because of the racist stereotypes, uh, stereotypes that are being tied to them today, and because we are watching the film today, because to me that was kind of the that, that was the immediate re- reading that I got out of the situation, and, and the reason why I have been dreading this moment is that when I started to do my background research on the, on the film and and studying what other people had said about the movie, I very quickly noticed that, that this scene and the animal cruelty, the sacrifice, sacrificial of uh, chickens, 
where the two elements that were very often kind of just jumped over, not mentioned in in any way, or if they were, they were very quickly made one short notice and kind of swept under the rug. And to to me, it, it actually does not read as anything else but rape. Because when, when the scene starts, when, when Atu and Nyanankoro are simply sitting there together, they are very awkward between each other. There, there is no romantic tension. Or, and I would say not even sexual tension between the two. Then Nyanankoro passes her something to eat, something to put into her mouth. She makes this cringy face, like it, it tastes bad. Nyanankoro is ha- not handing her a piece of goddamn Mars bar. Or anything that you would regularly eat. It's not precisely food. Uh, yeah. Right, right, right. After that, she starts to kind of wave back and forth, like Nian and Koro was waving when he was thirsty. And then she starts to strip her clothes. Jump cut into that face of a lady. Return back to village, and Atu is crying constantly. And Nian and Koro makes the case that. My penis betrayed me. Yeah, um, that's an interesting note because I wrote that uh, it was some kind of a magic food that uh, he was feeding for for Uta, and this uh, possibly cures the infertility, or it doesn't. And then maybe at this point, Nianankoro's magic is failing him, and he gets desperate, and then forcibly or unforcibly has sex with the lady. And yeah, and in in the movie's defense, I I did find precisely one article that that dwelt just a tiny bit deeper in this scene, and that article did make the notion that Nyanakoro is making some kind of a special magical powder that has Niyama in it, and that powder, like you mentioned, would be something that would cure cure Atu from from her infertility. Hmm. And one of the downsides of that those kind of remedies is the hyphened sexual appetite for a short time. And granted, okay. that might be something that comes into play here, but that still, in my opinion, does not remove the fact that during that moment, Atu is under influence of something, some other substance, the, the powder and, and the niyama. She is still kind of a truck and can't give her full consent. And suddenly the quote about penis is not so funny anymore when you consider all these options. It it becomes really terrible if you take that reading. Like, it's it's bad already because even if if it would be consensual, in that case, both Atu and Nyanankoro would have betrayed the king's trust. They would have participated in infidelity but that that is in the best case the best possible scenario in the worst case it's Nyanankoro hinting but not admitting outright that he would have raped the lady yeah and in addition to that I think it was going to get dark afterwards because Nyanankoro says that it's merely or what seems like it it's merely his penis that betrayed me, so it has nothing to do with Nyanankoro himself. And no, no, now I was yeah. expecting, yeah, 
now I was expecting the direction where the movie will, well, since the king hands the sword or such for Nianankoro, that this would be now the moment to to uh, to kill Uta because she's now carrying the unacceptable shame and has to be killed. I was expecting the honor killing, but that doesn't happen. It's uh, like given as uh, some kind of a wedding gift. Well, well, wh- whatever it is, the king still exiles her young wife and kicks her out of the village. Even though she is on her knees in front of him, begging to, for him to let her stay in, in the village. And, and the king is like, no, you go with Nyanankoro. Thankfully, but, but what ends up happening, it's, it's not that much great either. Like, the, the lady is still being punished for Nyanankoro's actions. That it is. Be- between these scenes relating to the lady... The father is doing some magic tricks on the road, makes the dogs and people walk in reverse. Well, specifically, there's there's an albino man and a red dog, which are summoned for some goddamn reason. Uh, yeah, they they are being summoned to be also sacrificed for I I guess for the god Mari, so that he would or so 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 that the guard would still continue helping Soma in in his quest to find Nyanankoro. Well, at least we are not burning people alive in this film yet. Actually, that's what is going to happen. You are just not being shown that. that. But yeah. Because Soma states out that he is still going to immolate both of them, the albino and the dog. So, yeah, both of them are going to be burned alive, just like the chick- chicken. Thankfully, you are not shown that in, in the film. Thankfully. Somehow I got the idea that he would be, in other means, using this to find his son. But So now there's this stranger who is entering the village with the two servants or pylon carriers. So it's um, this bad uncle, Uncle Bafing. And uh, tells uncle that this nephew, Nianankoro, was... There, the king tells to Uncle Buffing that Nyanankoro was there, but he did a lot of good stuff, and for that reason, he is not willing to give the location to this guy. And in fact, due to his applying his little freeze magic to the king, he humiliates the king in front of his warriors. That he does. Once again, tying down into how the Diara household. And through that, basically all the magic users you see actually practicing magic in this film, they all are assholes. Because Puffing does the same thing that Nyanankoro did when he first met the king, which is making physical threats towards the king. Nyanankoro made the case that he, he could just kill them all, and was, was Puffing that, that he will burn down the entire village if he cho- so chooses. So they both make physical threats. So it goes, and then we get to the Children of Como party. So basically, like I said, a bunch of old guys gathering together to drink to, to Como and hail to the Como, which knows the secrets, which again kind of feels kind of a... when talking of a god, but... Soma, the father of Nianankoro, is with them. He says that uh, 
he he will die for Como, but his son has betrayed the Como. One of those rare occurrences where the father is speaking of his reasons why he's doing all of this. Yeah, the actually the only I would say one of the third scenes where dad gives any explanation to his actions, and once again something that you kind of have to take with a grain of salt, mm. because once again in the name of context the. Film's plotline very strongly re- revolves around Como, the wizard Illuminati, which we only get to see in this one scene. But they, they are kind of the major motivation behind the film's plotline. Uh, the Como community in itself, as far as I've understood, is a real-life, really existing group of blacksmiths. Who combine being a blacksmith with esoteric and occultist knowledge. But not occultist and esoteric in the western meaning. Like with skulls and bones and and the black book of Satan. And trying to learn how to summon demons sense. But in, instead in in a way that they do believe strongly in, in Niyama. And the manifestations of Niyama and you being kind of a control your you yourself being able to manifest and kind of a target your Niyama. They they are esoteric and occult in that sense. Sometimes weird off and and feared, seen as freaks and untrustworthy people, but at, at the same time kind of, kind of a really Influential and helpful for the communities where they exist. Because because they are also blacksmiths. So they are one of those people who can actually make physical stuff. Make tools and weapons to be used. And part of this mistrust also comes from that said blacksmithy element. Because since Komos are blacksmiths. They kind of bind their occult understanding of Kore into the usage of of a bit forbidden power of fire, since they use fire to reshape objects in when, when they are practicing the actual smithing. And Como's, Como is a bit closed group, e- even in real life, I've understood. And they try to, much like in the film, they try to keep their secrets kind of close to their chest, and they aim for... The, the no, that knowledge and those secrets to be passed on through initiates, usually coming from their own bloodline or family line. And as, as far as I was able to track the meaning of Como as, as a group and as a word, I, I, I found, found it re- relating back to the legend of Sunyata, where the, the legendary warrior king Sunyata is helped at the end of his legend, he's, or throughout his legend he's been helped by blacksmith Fakoli, who also helps Sunyata to defeat Sosu, the main bad guy of the legend, and in, in there, as Fakoli travels around and organizes military campaigns, he raises Komos in these places where he visits and and has has this military influence. The theme of, of the Komos kind of comes down in pl- into play in, in Yelen in, in form of, once again, as, as, a, as a closed up 
wizard illuminati group which also kind of works as a representation of a corrupt government because the comos through their magicry and their they sacred and guarded knowledge they can have this influence on on society and because and through the influence they can very much control the societies because Komos administer the power of Kore, the seventh and final stage of initiation into divine knowledge, as stated in those opening texts of the film. And the main gist here, the main plot conflict, stems from the fact that that Soma, Nyankoro's dad, is part of Komo. And as a member of the Komo, he is supposed to pass down his knowledge. To, to someone, to have an initiate of his own, most preferably Niankoro himself. And Soma has actually gone against tradition here, because he has precisely refused to do that. He has refused to take an initiate and pass down his knowledge. He's breaking against the tradition and breaking against the rules of Komo. And that Kanava is, is the center of the conflict between uh, Niankoro and Soma. And also the main reason I see why Soma goes around telling everyone how Niankoro is a thief and how Niankoro is, is some kind of a bad guy who has broken against Komo, even though logic-wise Niankoro would never even have had a chance to do that. Yeah, so basically, given that there's so much to research for this film... You could question if the actual starting titles, the teaches the texts in the beginning of this film, you could wonder if they were in the actual original release, or is this just something to help out the Western audiences? I would very much believe that that is simply put there to help out the Western audiences. Yeah. Because, uh, once again, the print we are looking at, this is an international DVD release of the film. Hmm. And because of that, this is kind of a, this is this is the form of the movie that has been kind of a meant for us for the Western audiences audiences very much in the same way like for example the this film Yellen it has traveled through around the the movie festivals international film festivals and once again I I could very much believe that the print we are looking at. The, with with the added text, which I do believe are would not have been in the very original release of the film, the Malian release of the film, uh, could could be something that have been first introduced for that international film festival crowd, so that they could possibly try to understand what happens in the film. Yeah, yeah. There's a beautiful nightly landscape shot at one ten thirty, roughly. All of these landscape shots are. Uh, something uh, like a sight to behold. Beautiful. It's there for a moment, and then we watch for a while when Nianankoro is walking with uh, Uta to the place where he can find his uncle. But first, Nianankoro has a mission to purify himself at the Holy Bongo Spring. So, uh, purify of what? Is it to purify him of the betrayal of the penis? That's how I took it. I, I took it also. I, I took it that that he and Atu are purifying themselves from the sexual transgression. And it's also good to take a shower every once in a while. Uh, also that. 
Hygiene perhaps being something that might come into play, especially in a society where you eat eat a lot with your hands. True that. They take the purifying shower. And while while they're taking the shower, they're also... Nian and Koro is being told about... Was this now Dogon, people? Yeah? Yeah, Dogons. The Dogon way of controlling rain, which is the movie showing you the right way, how how the magical understanding and the magical knowledge should be handled, like it should be shared. And unlike Como, which guards its secrets close to its chest in order not to lose, lose its power in the society, the film argues that the Dogons are the more spiritually more on the right here and they hold their magical secrets more more correct way because they take part in sharing them with others yeah so they need to get the water flowing by lifting the fire for the fire spirit which sounds kind of unconventional way of thinking but that's the way to go from which they get to the fireside and this fireside most likely then related to the bringing of the water for the falls. But most importantly, it is for the creation of the Kore wing. Yep. And uh, it's revealed that Attu is pregnant, and it's a figure out of camera that says that. It takes like half a minute before we see who that person is. And there is a little bit of a shock treatment for the audience. Because it appears to be the father... But it's then cleared up that it's not the father, but it's the uncle, the good uncle. Uh, that he is. Identical twins. Yeah, maybe the budget didn't uh, allow them to have more actors in the film. Who knows? <laughs> well, like, ma- making of documentary that would explain everything what that went through, through into this process is something that is lacking on the DVD release. Yeah, zero extras on the disc. Zero extras. The budget didn't cover even those. The best extra on the disc is the naming of the final scene, which we will get to. But But it gives the confirmation of what is happening. It it, it does. It does. To to understand the film, go to the chapter selection of the DVD. (laughs) There is the quote which gives context to this whole mess, which goes from the uncle... Quote, for a long time our family has been cursed, I don't know why. My mind is tormented for, my death is near. And I don't see who after me can interpret that curse. That worries me. And he adds that he saw a light in a dream that will affect the Bumperas in the future, but will spare the Diara family. Interesting when put into the context that two Diara people die now. They they do, but but through Niankoro's discretions, he has fathered a child, and that child still can continue the Diara bloodline. And the slavery is addressed, so it he is. continues about the descendants who will go through a big change. They will be slaves and uh, will deny their race and their faith, subject that we discussed in the Sugarcane Alley episode. Yep. And kind of a subject that in African cinema, I believe, is quite often raised. Mm. Like, what I have seen African cinema, 
it it very often does somehow it it doesn't directly necessarily deal with with slavery but it does often mention it and colonialism and 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 the price that that has and often the tone of voice is pretty angry at least on my experience Excluding a screaming man, I would think that all the African films that I have seen somehow tackle the subject of slavery and uh, imperialism. Yeah, and that actually can explain why Yellen is is so well regarded and so beloved in West, because th- this is one of the highlight African cinema movies altogether. Mm. At, at least how, based on my research and based on what was said about the film. This was usually brought up as as one of the masterpieces, as as one of the African movies you most definitely should should see. And I was kind of wondering why that was, why Yellen was so prominent. And uh, it kind of kind of a, I, I started to think that maybe this is the point because because in in West we often deal with with white guilt, which stems from the colonialism era and and slavery, and we kind of feel bad for basically anything and everything in the world, and the fact that it rains today. And with that in mind, coming face to face, repeatedly face to face with African cinema, which takes an angry notion towards slavery and colonialism, it may feel a bit hurtful. It may kind of ring that, that white guilt bell in you. And then here comes Yellen, where once again slavery is brought up. But it's being brought up extremely quickly, where it really does not tie into the story in any way. The tone is not angry; it's kind of a more tranquil. It is. It is. I, I see slavery coming in the future, but we still will be okay. It's not the end of us. There will be a change for us, and that whole thing is basically or the ra- direct. Acknowledgement of slavery is is just in one sentence. Yeah, throughout the film, I found it interesting that it seems to be some kind of a bombard way of acknowledging what somebody is saying, like saying "uh-huh, uh-huh" every time one part of the sentence is said. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, <laughs> what, what? Yeah, but I found it a little bit humorous at this point when Nianan Koro goes just like okay. There's gonna be a lot of slavery and suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a very cool-headed guy. He is, but that that may kind of a, kind of a feed into this being an easy to watch African film in in the West because the slavery is not addressed that that strongly. Yeah, you you you, you uh, can like like if you if you are a film podcaster, you you can make the case that. That you you consume world cinema, you watch international cinema. I watch I watch this international African film here, <laughs> and it doesn't not ring your white cute bell. Yeah, it's kind of a easy to see why somebody could see that this as the pearl of African cinema because it's so traditional. It's something that most people in Western world will never get to see. But is there something else going for it, or uh, can it be recommended as simply from the cultural context that it will be valuable from that sense? Let's see that in the review parts. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah let's uh, save that one into the quickies. 
But I, I was, I, I did find myself kind of wondering why this is so highly regarded from from the lineup of African cinema. Of course, there is the factor that there is not that much African cinema altogether. Like for for example, the film industry in Mali being very small, being very limited into few kind of artistic voices that get has a shot in in the industry, but. But there, there lies, lies the fact that filmmaking kind of requires a hell of a lot from you. It, it requires actors, it requires sets, it requires equipment, all that costs money, and most definitely it requires audience, like people who are willing to see your story. And Mali being extremely poor country really does not have any of those. N- not the money and not necessarily the audience, who would have the money to pay to see the film, or even time to watch your film. And because of these factors, the film industry in Mali is is what it is. It is few prophetic names, and that about that. If we are not counting in the possibility of Nollywood. Yeah, well, if we acknowledge the Bambara people, and how they spread around the West Africa or Africa in, in general... I can see that there's a marketplace for this film in Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire or these other countries where you can see either Bambara people or people that are related to them. Or just simply like people of of this region that might be interested in the in the nearby region's history. But yeah, I got the feeling that there is not a big audience for this film. And of course we don't know anything about like the box office records or such. Unless yeah, you have we, we, we can't even be sure about the budget in in this film's case. I, I do know that this this has toured in film festivals, and this has even won some awards. Yeah. So th- this has been seen, this has been loved, and this has had its shot, and it has used that shot, and it has garnered appreciation, but... Other than that, it's really hard. It, it, it's hard to see how well-known, or it's it's hard to say how well known this movie is. But here we get to more assholes. There's the quote, Your grandfather, in a rage, rushed into this room and came out with the wing of Kore. Its brightness dazzled me. I could see nothing but a shadow, so I left the country, blind. Only your mother knows my story, end quote. And this... Uh, establishes that the grandfather is not a nice person or was not a, not a nice person makes a guy go blind and something similar happens in this film but looks like they also die or continue their existence in another life yeah this kind of a being the the curse of the diara which gets mentioned a couple of times yeah interestingly it's not laid out why they are cursed nobody knows i i, I didn't think that Take the curse is once again like a Western curse, where where it's somebody puts a curse on you and then bad stuff happens. Yeah, it could be like a person does bad deeds and then continues doing that. And that precisely was my take on what what the curse yep. means here. It, it, it is kind of it, it is the selfish, extremely selfish, mean and cruel attitude that has started to fester within the Diara household. From the grandfather to, to Soma, and he, at least maybe in in some extent in Nianakoro. 
So the chorus magic eye has come out of the ashes of the fire apparently and uncle rejoices. He asks to get the wing of Gore, once again the core scepter from the cave so that this can be combined with the magic eye. It needs to be inserted to the Gore wing. Now uncle says that Neon and Goro can go challenge his father with the Gore wing and uh, tells Utta to stay with uncle and wait. Utta cries, cries because the challenger is indeed mighty and powerful, as established long ago by the mother of the fam of the Nianankoro. Utta indeed runs back to his man, and I thought that this was a moment of love, and says that don't forsake me. Of course, she probably needs somebody to help her out in, in life, because, you know, if we take into any reading the 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 well-being of women in the current day Mali, then probably it's good to have a husband around. But uh, Nianokoro yeah. joins the battle. Yeah, that was my take also. I, I didn't read it that much as 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 love. Like good, of, yeah. of of course so, something that that kind of hindered in with me in this, in, the, in that scene what was the reading of rape that I took from the film previously. But to me, it kind of reminded about the dangers of being a pregnant single woman who has once, quote-unquote, belonged to some man. Like, I, I, I took it that she was kind of worried about her social status at that point. She kind of needs Nian Karo so that she can have an official man, a husband. Yeah, of course you can read it like that. There could have been some feelings that have been developing on the way, but like you have said, they it doesn't seem like they, there's a lot love going on. There's not shared kisses, and who knows about the traditions of showing the love in this culture, because I do not know if they keep kissing each other or wh- what else. It, it can also come down to play with, with these being rather unexperienced actors. Of course, like, seems like the entire cast is inexperienced and their only credit is this film. Yeah, one or two films entirely under their belts. Not, in, not in counting the cinematography and the director. Yeah, at least when looking at the actor of Nianankoro, Isiaka Kane, this is his only credit. Oh, so it's time for the final battle. As it's actually in the chapter selection too, so I got it right. It is indeed final battle. Meets father on the other side of the open field. Now the Colon Kalani, the magic pylon is being stripped from its carrier's hands and lands tipped down. Also, a moment which you can read in several ways is when the father says that you've doomed yourself. You were alive, now you're dead. So... Is he still alive? I suppose he's still alive, but it's uh, giving the meaning that he's going to now, most definitely, going to die. Yup. Sees a dead man standing, so to speak. Yeah. And adds, you were my son until you left your mother's womb, as mentioned. Read it as you want. Pambara's greatest fear is the shame and humiliation, as we have noted before. Uh, but it's more to do with the, with the whole como than anything else. Yeah, I, I took it that kind of that that the shame and fear here is is Nyan Koros 
shame and fear. fear. He, he fears that his father will continue to disown him and he fears this because doing so would bring shame to Niankoro, who now would have would be fatherless. No one's son, so to, uh, so, so to speak. Kind of a notion that you also see in, in Western tradition. The usual, the usage of the adopted son, adopted ch- child plotline, which also is typically played as as a shocking and bit traumatic event to the main character or the character who finds out that he who finds that he's he has been adopted at some point like i i i watched this this old 90s early 2000s disney family adventure comedy thing it was i don't remember the name of it at all based on Alaska or something like that. But to kind of uh, highlight my point with the Western storytelling tradition, the main character is a son of of a dentist father. And in the early hours of the film, the son finds out that he has been adopted. Confronts his dad about this, and the dad goes that, well, you you have been always been our son. We have always loved you as a son. But yes, you are uh, you are adopted, and this is like a shocking revelation to the main character. Com- completely comes out of the blue and shakes his world to a point where he now has to move to Alaska because that makes fucking sense. So uh, m- much like in here, where not having a father. Being abandoned by your father is, is a source of shame. That is also something that I, I see happening also in, in, the, in the Western storytelling tradition. That, that not having a father, not having a parent, being adopted, not having your biological parent there is something that is shameful and disturbing. For some odd reason, which I have never actually understood, why it's such of a high point, but apparently it's it's a huge deal. Yeah, the magic pylon carriers run away as the final battle is reaching its conclusion, and now we ha- hear the voiceover where some godly figure, as we understand it, is speaking to Soma, the father. That. Your ancestors were priests of the coma, but for centuries they've misused their powers. I've left only ruin in my wake. I've been faithful to the tiaras. Now it's over. Your lust for revenge, your contempt and hate of humanity have gone too far. I'm going to disappear. You won't survive, Soma. For you are the one who used their power only for evil and injustice. End result, a huge ball of light. And both of the characters are expected to be dead at this point. Yeah, dead and then coming back as some kind of eggs. Yeah, not to forget the quick shots of the animals, like there's a lion. The way I I took the final battle is that Niankoro either transforms or spiritually manifests a lion... And Soma, his father, manifests an elephant. Which appear just before they die. Kind of a life running before your eyes moment or something like that. Yup. And the, you also met the notion that you hear you hear that chicken in oh, the yes. background just, as, as that happens. Just before that mysterious light, the alien appears. The chicken makes a return as a voice. 
Yep. And and from there, the bright light, Yelen, the brightness, covers them both. The whole location seems to turn into Saharan desert, and then they appear, Soma and Niankoro appear as, as eggs. Kind of a lay, laying some weight into Digju's statement, I believe that one can die without ceasing to exist. Life and death are like scales, lied one, one upon each other. Yeah, interesting quote. Just a little about the chicken more, because we were discussing how to interpret the appearance of the chicken here. I suppose, well, I took it in the way that it could be that the chicken, which was sacrificed in the beginning of, of the film, the chicken's kind of a sacrifice energy is now put into use in this situation by the god that is talking via voiceover, or by uh, Soma, the father, or it just could be that we get a glimpse of what happened before in the film. Yeah, kind of a audio reminder of, of Soma's past transgressions to highlight to you that Soma really is a bad guy in case you have forgotten. During the time you have followed your hero, Nyankoro, going around. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it uh, turns into a total Saharan des- desert. I have to assume that some time has, of course, passed here now in between, because we see uh, the child of Uta now as a kid, let's say five years old maximum, and goes to collect the egg that appears to be in the same location where uh, Soma and Nianankoro just died some years before. The boy finds the egg, gives her son the Nianankoro rope, which Uta got from Nianankoro before the epic battle, and said that you can give this to my son. Uta walks away with the egg, and is it the spirit or new form of husband then? I don't know, but leaves it under the scepter, then takes the scepter and hands it also to the son. They walk away. Yeah, the implication here being that the son, it, it, it is both continuation of the Diara lineage, but it's kind of also the new dawn for the region, because through Uta's son, the kind of combines the three tribes. There is the Bambara from Niankoro's seed, there is the Peul from Uta and her womb, and since Uta, just before the final fight, he takes refuge with, with Niankoro's uncle, the good uncle, who now lives with Dogon tribe and most likely has kind of lived with, with him, with the tribe. Up until th- this point, in the sun there is also, through teaching and tradition, there also comes the element of Dogons. So, in the end, the sun is kind of a, the, the triforce of, of the Three tribes that have been presented in the film. Ooh, raw credits. Favorite performance. Well, goes to the man who I I think gave the best performance, even though his character did not do that much. But it's Nuamonto Sanogo, the dude who pre- plays Soma, who pulls a double yeah. role in the film. As as a Soma, he simply wanders around with with, with a pole. And and sits around with with his Illuminati friends in one scene, but but still, I, I would say the most electric performance in this film. For sure, raving on about his son throughout, and uh, 
spitting the spells, but spitting the sp- spells yeah. and making the the ritual song mm. by God was that strong performance right there. I felt that the I would then go with Valamusa Keita playing Ruma Bolly the King. Also, I think a pretty good performance, especially goes into good use in the scene where he hears about the Nianan Koro being betraying the king's trust and <laughs> yeah. fucking his wife. Yeah, goes full. Eh? <laughs> yeah, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I actually had to rewind it back and see did that actually happen? Yeah, I I, I I did the same. I I, I wasn't <laughs> using headphones when I was listening to this, and, and I I heard that, and I was. Immediately was did that happen in the film or is my DVD player just acting out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, these cultural things. Favorite scene? Uh, like I, I did love the landscape shots in in, yeah. in this film, but as as a favorite scene, I kind of a, I would kind of, I have to think about it how like where the acting and and the camera work and. All that jazz kind of comes best, comes together the best, and I think that one is the moment when Soma performs that ritual dance song, whatever it is, amidst his wizard Illuminati friends. Okay, yeah, that's a good one for me. I enjoy the nightly scene when Nilan Koro. Faces the, faces the king and explains what exactly happened with the wife, because I felt that the tension was at the, you know, interesting point that here it was exciting. What's gonna happen next? Is he gonna slay them all? But no. No, he he's just, you know, please, have my wife. And is that done because the king fears Nianankoro? It, it might be. It might be because he's peace at the whole situation. Or it could simply be because previously the king has made the notion that, that he his wife is barren. He his wife is the is the reason why they can't have children. The fault is in the wife. And if, if wife now could have children, it might also read to someone the way that it's actually the king who has become sterile and the fault lies within the king. Yeah, Nianankoro could have just easily walked away from the village and then, lo and behold, the king has a child and problem evaded. Uh, pretty so, much, yeah. yeah since, uh, of course, also adding the fact that the, maybe the wife didn't even know what was going on if she was indeed raped. So the wife well, would well, be fine. Well, she, she, she did have some kind of an inclination of something that has happened because she's crying a whole lot. That could be, or Nianankoro just... Uh, Laid the cards for for her and uh, explained what the situation was. I I, that, I raped. Yeah, her. yeah, that that could also be favorite quote. Well, it goes to Nian Koro, Nian Koro, and this is actually you know after we have tampered so much about this plot point, this is a pretty troubling quote, but it is still the best line. Oh no, my penis betrayed me. Because I, I know that sentiment. My penis often betrays also me. <laughs> That's a lot. Oh. Well, that was my favorite quote before <laughs> before you before you made these accusations against uh, Nianan Koro and I decided to change my mind during <laughs> you, you, you this episode. Are, you are welcome. I'm always, <laughs> always happy to ruin your quotes for you. 
So I'll just go with the, which was already mentioned here. So life and death are like scales, laid one upon another. Favorite kill? Yeah, from from the exact two or maybe three deaths in this film. Depending on, do you count the final battle as as two or just one kill? But I, mm. I, 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 since I get the first blood here, I, I take the easy one. It's the suiciding samurai dude who loses the head, but competition, and then kills himself in shape. Now you can go and pick some chickens, like. <laughs> no, I would go with the the asshole who killed the chicken, Soma. Or if that was a combination, some kind of Soma, Nianankoro entity, whatever. Yeah, yeah whatever. Like, we, we don't know what it was, but we are fairly certain that it still was an asshole. All right. How do you feel getting getting the, the, the first like uh, like uh, warming up vibes of what is happening in Cannibal Holocaust? Would you be watching that now with pleasure? Torturing of animals. Mm, kind of, yeah. Why not? I mean, I, I, I do get what, what, what you are aiming at here. But the thing is, I, I, I have watched my share of international cinema. I've, I've watched my share of shock cinema and, and art cinema. So in that regard, I kind of, I, I have seen the animal cruelty. I, I have seen the real life cruelty presented on humans. And like, like Cannibal Holocaust, even ain't the worst example of of animal cruelty that comes to mind from mm. from all all the all the cinematic masterpieces that I have consumed. Yeah, uh, speaking of penises, there is one actually cut straight on screen, and it looks pretty goddamn convincing. Uh, I'm not surprised why people were uh, accusing the film crew of actually killing these people because, well. During, during the publicizing of, of the film, they told the actors to disappear <laughs> to, during the premiere of the film. So people would, I guess, think that they're actually dead, which which they weren't, though. Pretty sick shit. But it, it did work. <laughs> well, certainly worked to give some infamous fame for this film. And infamous fame these days is pretty much the only fame that the film still has. Yeah, first shot that comes to mind. Uh, that would be the landscape shot before they get to take the holy shower, I believe it was. To me, it actually is the Sahara shot, uh, right pre- before the kid goes in and fetches the eggs, or the egg. Alright. Which shot best exemplifies this film? Ooh, the final battle? Mm, yeah, may- maybe. Maybe the final battle. Or the chicken hanging upside down with blood running out? That may be more than the final battle in the end. Favorite shot. Uh, favorite shot for me, it's the establishing shot for the little shower of the mother. Yeah, I just have to take one of those landscape shots. Favorite hut. Was there anything, <laughs> was there anything that uh, you were fancying? That burning chicken. That, that was literally hot. Okay, so yeah, great. I can throw whichever categories haphazardly at you and you will just take them and uh, shoot them back good favorite hot um i mean it was a hot scene there was fire i think the hottest scene though is the moment when 
Nielan Koro is uh, burning the, the 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 assailants before they attack the village. Or he's burning something. We really don't see humans burning in that moment. I was kind of uh, waiting for that to happen. Like I, I was expecting to see burning people, and all I get is some fucking bushes <laughs> and one tree. What was not so hot here? Actually, it was also the burning of the chicken. Yeah, that or or that famous sex scene. Uh, what took me out? Well, it was a little bit slow. There was a bit of a wandering around before we get to the meat of the scene. Just that. And of course, that, that film kind of dropped me out on the first go because I, I didn't understand what the fuck was going on. Yeah, to, to me, the film actually went past quite quickly. I was surprised how how easily it goes, even on repeated viewings. Like, I, I, I never felt that it was too long. I, I felt that it was, it was just right length. Okay, on the first go, I was definitely clock-watching. Okay, I, I wasn't, I wasn't. But that was more like, I think because of the amount of information that was already fed for me in the first five minutes, and then I was like, how much more do I have to control when watching this? Yeah, you, if there was something that really kind of threatens to take you out in the movie, I, I do feel that it, it, is the, it is the lack of context that you get for basically anything that happens in the film. That the fact that you are so out of the experience and you kind of feel alienated from the film as it as it plays, you, you really get the feeling that this is not film that has been made you in mind. This is film that has been made to someone else and now you just get the chance to, chance to witness it. But that's kind of the case with many movies, just like with Korean films that we have gone through with this podcast. But it was it has been a, of course a lesser uh, level of challenge. But there there is always that cultural context. Uh, there is so. a cultural context, sure. But in in the previous films, either the culture has been related enough to the Western culture that you can kind of on face value you can understand what is happening and why and why this matters. Yeah, you know what is a pistol, what is a bomb, and what is a football stadium. Uh, yeah, and, and you understand what is civil war, and you understand why the brotherly ties work as they do in Thai cookie. Or you understand, or they deal with an universal theme, like poverty in Stray Dogs. Where even though the way how the film presents itself in Stray Dogs it is hard to approach... And hard to decipher, but but it but you still very much understand poverty. You understand what the film is tackling about. But in in here, it is so local the the film and its themes and the way how the story is being presented. Like something that is often pointed out with Ian is that it follows the traditional hero's journey or what today counts as Hero's Journey. Hero's Journey originally being a whole fucking book, which today has been condensed into a, into a sentence that in, in a story there is a character and shit happens. Yeah, you, you, you have the Hero's Journey sort of here, and you, you have the three-act structure in a sense, and and you have well, like you have elements that are relatable to you, like the father-son conflict. Which is also something that the Western audiences are very familiar with. Look, I am your father, and then you do it, nuke it out in the in the third film of the trilogy. But 
even though all, all those elements are there, I would say that this is still relies so heavily on understanding the context in which the story is being presented that I I don't say see that this is anything that is easily approachable by Western audiences. And the notion that, that this is somehow easy going for Western audience, that notion, to me, it doesn't hold water. E- even though you can see the heroes turn there, it, it, in the end, it does not save you from the lack of context and the need of having that context and understanding the context. So it's just so that you can understand the said hero's journey in the film. Yeah, this is not a film to pop on on your Friday evening and put in the popcorn in the microwave and start watching. It's exactly the mistake that I did when I was watching this film. That's 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 not just the way it works. Or You can do that. What happens is basically... Uh, there's a rug pulled under your feet, you land on your head and you feel like an ass for the next uh, one hour and 40 minutes and wish you were never born and why did you choose this film for the podcast. But once it starts opening up to you and you research it, well, it's been, um, it's been giving. It's been great. Yeah, after three weeks, it, it, it can start <laughs> feeling great. Or, or, or after listening to this episode... Hoping that we actually have managed to do our job here and give you some of the film's context. What pulled us in? To me, it actually is the first chicken burning. Like, I, 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 I am not all for animal cruelty. I, I am very strongly against it. But the truth also is that animal cruelty does work on film. It is shocking. It's, it's disgusting. It's, it's discomforting. But it's also something that immediately gets your attention. That is yeah. basically the reason yeah. why so many films actually use it. Yeah, that's exactly what pulls you in right in the first minutes. And I will have to go with that too. Scissors of Sacrilege, sacrilege what would you change in a Malian film? Um, kind of a dickish answer to give, but I would actually try to make this easier for Western audiences. Like I, I would try to make this film more universal. Yeah, I would make... Uh, uh, some kind of a maybe there could be like a educational video for the first 15 minutes where like a, some kind of a cartoonish character like from the Jurassic Park theater you know when the doctor and the, uh, all of them are in in the theater and they're explained how the Jurassic Park Park creatures are made you know something similar could be popping up on the screen and explaining what the hell is Mali what the hell are these tribes and their religions and beliefs and yeah yeah, then of course, in in the end, w- with that notion, you also have have to remember that, L- like I said, you are not in the target audience. So I do know that. I realize that, and uh, yeah. So so w- w- while we are complaining about the fact that we it, it is so hard hard of a film to approach, and it took us so much work, there there also is the is the fact that well, we are strangers to this situation. And we, we essentially we are complaining that we actually had to do our job. But hey, if you want to check out something something easy, we can all, always go for the Marvel films, like the MCU. What what seventh cycle is is, is soon starting since they just finished off the last one. So did you say Marvel in this podcast? I I most definitely did. 
Like, did, did, did you know that Marvel films these days are the most important cultural talking points and overall societal arguments that you can have? Like, well, like, like Black uh, Panther uh, alone single-handedly undid racism. Challenge accepted. We can have like a Marvel month in this podcast at some point next year. And we will talk nothing but for Marvel movies. I'm up for the challenge. And uh, you know how it it will turn out, dear listeners, if you know my feelings towards Marvel movies <laughs> in general. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not looking for that myself. But if we go there, I'm ready. Because I actually, I, I have watched all of them except Endgame. Oh. Already. So I know, Why? I know what awaits Why? there. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe because they became such of a big societal and cultural kind of almost an entity on their own right. I just it's kind of the same same sick fascination to to cheap spectacle that I have for for Transformers films. I hate each and every one of them, but I've also seen each and every one of them. It's like listening to Kanye West with earplugs. Still bad. Yup, it is. It is. Granted, Marvel ain't ain't as bad as Transformers. Take that as you will. You really know. You are watching, Yellen. When? When you form an occult Illuminati just to sit around and drink warm and stale beer. Like, yuck. Yeah, you really know you're watching Yellen when you have the biggest asshole of the family contest in Mali. Three adjectives to describe Yellen. Would be dense in 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 positive way, not not in the mentally retarded way. <laughs> Cryptic, because this most definitely is. Like like this is a fucking Rubik's cube that you just have to start to untangle and contextual because context is everything in Yellen. I would say cultural, creepy, and torturous. I, I'm, I'm sensing chicken. some real, real love there. Well, it it is, sounds bad. Is, is this the vegan in you talking? Is this the vegan in you talking? Part-time vegan. <laughs> so, so, so what? Every Monday to Friday from eight to four p.m. you are vegan. Precisely. Okay. But uh, yeah, but it's not only about. The chicken, it's also about the human fleshy flavor of the middle part of the film when it gets creepy in that sense. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. Did you look at your watch? No. No. I did first go, but on the second, no. Because I already knew roughly what was going on. <laughs> no, you didn't. You just kind of watch it again, trying to see if, if what you just saw in the first time actually did really happen. <laughs> like the... <laughs> Henrik, would you recommend Yellen? Um, yeah, no. Um, I I give it a careful recommendation. Like like this is this is kind of a stray dogs type of recommendation. I I do think that that w- once again this being uh this coming from Mali, it it does have that cultural aspect in it, and it it can be an enjoyable if not if somewhat problematic film to watch. The main problem here, in in my opinion, like, why, why this is not a glowing recommendation, why I'm not going to push this film on to anyone, is that 
it just it it's so hard to get into this like to understand what is going on and and what is happening what the film is trying to say i i did find it taking a hell of a lot of work and i really don't know if if, if that is something like like, like can can you actually openly go arms wide open go and recommend a film that requires three weeks of freezer just so that you understand can have a vague understanding of what the hell you just saw. So once again, we are facing with the with the trouble of how to actually approach this review. So there's 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 the Finnish way of looking at this, and then you could imagine if you're in your head, what if you're you were born and raised in Mali, would you find something in this? Like naturally, culturally, being born there and understanding all the cultural context, and then watching this film, would it be <laughs> valuable for you? In that case, I would mostly say that, yeah, yeah, you would, and it would, because after that, you can get even more deeper in, in the film, like, you can more easily see, for example, the parallels that this film ties with with Como, the now corrupted kind of a institutional force, and the real-life political corruption that goes on in 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 world in Africa in Mali, and you you can find the parallels between the film, and you you can find the parallels between this film and, for example, the Musatare governance and the atrocities that happened during his time. Like I I, I would say, in, if you already have the cultural background to to understand what happens in the film. From the get-go, in in that case, most definitely, yeah, go and check Yelen. Hmm. From my part, I'm going to go somewhere between two worlds, I guess, because I'm Finnish, I'm not Malian, but I can see it from the Malian perspective. And in that sense, I suppose my recommendation would be kind of a lukewarm recommendation. Like, you can listen to this podcast, and then you will be bright like Yelen, and you will readily hop on to the film and enjoy it to your heart's content. However, well, if you were born in Mali, you are probably very familiar with the traditions and the culture and the mythology that you see here. And in that sense, would the film be interesting to you at this point? Probably. I can't really say. Well, yeah, I mean, American films can be interesting to Americans and Finnish films can be interesting to Finns. Um, yeah. In in those cases, yeah, basically they and we Finns we cover have the context. But what what if you if we look past the whole problem of studying this for like two or three weeks? Uh, once you understand the film, you have you know the ammunition or you have the knowledge to go through this film. Then uh, go ahead. I I found it really like an enriching experience to know about these type of cultures, which we normally don't really see. And what could be a more powerful weapon than to get close to it via the means of uh, cinema? By all means, watch this film. It's not even that long that, you know, it goes by fast. When you... Yeah, it's it's like one hour and 45 minutes with yeah. like five minutes of end credits. Yeah, so most definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if, if you can watch like three hours of Transformers or, or Avengers Endgame, you can most definitely see through the running time of Yelen. Uh, no, you can't. As a modern audience, you can't. But I'm going to recommend it anyway, because you need more films like Yelen and less Marvel. Because attention span nowadays is what it is. I make no comment on this subject. All right. Would it be 
the episode for this week. I guess that could actually tie it up. So next week we're gonna do something slightly different. We are going to check out the first Terminator from 1984 in celebration of the the Dark Closet or whatever it was that is coming soon. Produced by James Cameron. No, we are not going to touch that one. No, the original. Um, to reminisce the good times. The, the good times when James Cameron still knew how to actually make a enjoyable films. Yeah, we have covered the Terminator 2 because we like logic already. And <laughs> yeah, maybe. Because that's, that's how you chronologically do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a, at least myself, I had a personal bias for Terminator 2, which I consider still to be the better Terminator. Spoilers, but you can check out that episode first. It's uh, the first episode of this year, 2019. So check it out and then come back to the first one. Yeah, because if there is something that Curry has still has failed to learn, it is that whenever a new grandiose big production franchise picture like the latest Terminator gets released, the internet surfing audiences will only be interested in what people have to say about the, the dark legacy. And they, they, they won't be paying any attention to what, what couple of film podcasters have to say about the first Terminator. Mm, so better start uh, hamping on about the Patreon here. So please give <laughs> us all your money so we can go to the theater and uh, review this wonderful masterpiece. Yeah, this podcast is being sponsored by Loot Crate, <laughs> which doesn't help us at all. In my books, it's fine. If you want to go see Dark Fate, I can go see Dark Fate after this Terminator 1984 review and a long silence. Yeah, I, I, I have, I, I have no interest with the latest Terminator, like none at all. I, I know I will see it someday. The same way I someday I will check out the. The previous one, the Genesis, Genesis, Sega's mm, Genesis, what, whatever it was, yeah. I, I, I will, I will see it. Terminator, uh, Mega Drive, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I will be back with a shotgun. Wrong. <laughs> So read it, read it as you read it as you want.